Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshtata. What you're about to hear in this episode is a live recording of a session that took place at the Z Jaipur Literature Festival 2020 in January at the Digi Palace. Here it is. be here and my role is to serve as a moderator uh, of what I hope will be a scintillating conversation. Um, we have two panelists who bring uh, diverse perspectives on a perennial issue of really what is innovation. Innovation is a word that's much used, somewhat abused, overused. Um, it's easy to be cynical about it, but it's also easy to recognize that it's extremely important to the way societies function. Uh, how could it not be? Uh, on my, on your far right is uh, Tilly Bleth, who is the uh, chief curator of the Science Museum in London. Um, for those of you who have been to London or are frequent visitors to London, it's on a lovely street, whose name I always forget, but I remember now, Exhibition Row. Uh, it's along with the V&A, uh, the Victoria and Albert Museum, um, and Imperial College, and the Museum of Natural History, and so on and so forth. And I think it's a perfect geographic setting for the topic of this panel because the panel is about the art of innovation and the science of innovation, so to speak. And you, on, on the V&A, for those of you who know uh, the origins and provenance of that street, it's all about the mixing of art and science. So it's particularly opportune. Uh, on my immediate left, um, in the center for you, uh, is Payal Arora, who is a professor at Erasmus University. Um, and. Uh, has written a lovely book uh, called The Next Billion, which she'll talk about, I'm sure. Um, and in a sense, when we were conversing uh, online and in person right before this, we realized that uh, even though they've come to these issues from completely different vantage points, uh, there's a lot of interesting overlap, which you'll see. But what's interesting about it is that completely different empirical domains in some sense. And that, that kind of makes it fascinating, uh, two fascinating looks at the same rather profound issue. Um, uh, I'm a professor at Harvard uh, as my day job, and uh, I teach a, a class that curiously turns out to be related to this at Harvard College, which is called uh, Creativity um, uh, in, in Economic and Social Development. And I co-teach it with uh, a medical doctor, an architect, uh, a jazz musician, and a mathematician, uh, just, to, just to illustrate the mixing of art and science in problem solving, so to speak. But without further ado, the way we're going to do this is uh, uh, Tilly is going to uh, show some slides uh, and talk through her points, and Payal will do the same. And we'll keep our introductory comments to no more than uh, 10 or 15 minutes, have a little bit of a conversation, and then reserve the last 15 minutes for a Q&A. So Tilly, all yours. So good afternoon, everybody. and. Uh... It's really delightful to be here at the Jaipur Literary Festival. I've never been to the festival before, but I'm just overwhelmed with uh, the number of amazing ideas, the level of interaction from the audience, and I think especially on the first day, it was so delightful to see school groups here um, at the festival engaging at this, this level um, with literature. So thank you so much to Sanjoy and to the JLF team for inviting me to be here today. Um, 
So as Taryn said, um, I'm here to talk about the relationship between science and art. Um, and this really came from a project that we started uh, as a major partnership, a landmark partnership with the BBC, um, the broadcasting, British broadcasting company in, uh, in the UK, um, and the Science Museum. Um, we started talking to them a few years ago um, about this relationship between art and science and how we might do um, a variety of different uh, products that would come out of, of talking about this relationship. So we, we did a 20-part radio series, um, uh, and that was uh, with my co-author and uh, co-presenter, Sir Ian Blatchford, who's the director of the Science Museum in London. Um, and that went out um, in September, and you can also still download that from BBC Sounds. Um, and I'm surprised you could seem to be able to download it in India. I tried it yesterday, so that was exciting. Um, we also published this book, The Art of Innovation, um, and that talks about those 20 episodes. And then there's a free exhibition at the Science Museum, which sadly uh, closes tomorrow. So if you haven't seen it already, it's pretty unlikely you'll be able to get there for it. Um, so I think for me, this was a deeply personal um, reason for wanting to go into this subject area. I had two parents who uh, were both art students. They both went to art college. They would endlessly drag me um, around at art exhibitions. And yet, I had a yearning for, for science, and I did a physics degree. And I was kind of, I've always found that these two worlds, to me, are not separate. To me, they've always been part of who I am. And I, um, every way, everything I approach, and all the stories that I tell about the history of science and technology, I see them as, as completely intertwined. I think um, when Ian and I, and uh, my colleague Roger Highfield, who's also in the audience, he was involved in our early stages of this discussion, we were thinking about this relationship between art and science, and we really felt that, as C.P. Snow had said, you know, this was two cultures, his famous two cultures debate in, in 1959, we felt that that was very wrong, and we felt that actually this is two parts of the same culture, and it's much more um, helpful to both scientists and artists to think about where the collaboration is and where, um, where their intersection is. So that's really where we're coming from, and we want to think really about how they d develop and define each other. Um, to me, science is very much a human activity. It's not, um, you know, rational and dispassionate. It's, it's messy. Um, it's driven, driven by a desire to succeed. It's driven by competition, by egos. Um, it doesn't happen in isolation to society. And hopefully, I think um, that comes through very strongly in the 20 chapters and the 20 stories that we told through, um, through the radio series and through the book. So I'm just going to touch very quickly on two of those stories to give you a sense of um, what it was that we were, you know, trying to, 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 to get to and trying to talk about. Um, so if we could bring up the first slide, please. So this is, uh, many of you from Britain may already know this, this image. This is Rain, Steam and Speed by J.M.W. Turner from 1844. Um, absolutely stunning image. You have this locomotive hurtling towards you, 
you know, as if driving into the audience and going through this extraordinary, almost um, impressionistic scene of, of the rain um, and the steam driving forward. Um, and it was Turner's um, opportunity to really look at this sense of progress as new railways uh, were driving across Britain. You know, to go on this locomotive, this is called a Firefly locomotive, you, if you traveled on this in 1844, you would have been traveling at the, faster than anyone else in the world at the time. You'd be going over 60 miles an hour. So Turner was trying to capture this incredible sense of, of progress and of change um, and of innovation. But I think it's also quite interesting if you look in more detail at the image, you see um, on the left-hand side, you probably just be able to make out a tiny little rowing boat. Um, so very much the technology of the past. And to the right, on the far right side, just above um, the railway, is this plough. Um, and you probably can't see it in the image that I've shown you, but if you're in front of the painting at the Science Museum or in the National Gallery where um, it normally hangs and where they've kindly loaned us um, this image, this painting, um, there's a tiny hare running in front of the train. So all of this is harking back to this nostalgia of the past, these things that have, um, that have moved on and have come, you know, come to be. Um, but to me, this is very much Turner expressing not, not just a, not this nostalgia and this uh, fear of change, but actually this enthusiasm for new innovation. Um, and I think there's this ways that we can look at this painting that help us reflect on our own experience of change today that we're seeing with so many new things like the mobile phone, the increase in data. Um, so it's really about what constitutes progress and the fear and excitement of change. Now, I just wanted to highlight we, we are putting all of the scientific objects um, alongside the paintings. And again, this is quite unique. I think, it, to me, it seems extraordinary that so many people may have seen Turner's Rain, Steam and Speed, but they've never seen this beautiful model that was made by Daniel Gooch. He was the superintendent of locomotives um, for Brunel, for the GWR. Um, and he was so proud of what he'd made um, that he created this one-eighth scale model of the Firefly locomotive. So this is this beautiful copper and brass locomotive with these tiny rivets and rosewood. This actually works, so he would run this around his office um, to show people, you know, this great feat of engineering that he had created. And hopefully another slide. Yes. Um, and this is just the, the locomotive with the painting on display in the exhibition. So you can see how we've displayed it almost as kind of coming out of the painting as if it's going to run you over. It kind of almost captures the Lumiere brothers, you know, that sense of the train coming out of, of the screen when they first showed film and the horror and, and shock that people felt when that uh, was moving towards you. So I wanted to move on to a second story that's not so much about, uh, about progress and about this sense of innovation and change, but actually this looking more detail at the relationship between artists and scientists and how they both think, um, and the kinds of process um, that they might use. Because I think, we, as I said, we tend to think they're very separated. You know, science is about empirical inquiry. Um, art is about passion um, and understanding. But I think, actually, if you look through time, you can see points where artists and scientists are very much intertwined, and the way that they're working with imagery um, is very similar. So this is a nice uh, 
story that I can tell you about a man called James Naismith. He was actually an engineer. Um, he created something called the steam hammer, a very important piece of engineering that was used for manipulating very large pieces of cast iron. Um, and he would, you know, manipulate these. And uh, he made millions, became very, very rich from this discovery. And uh, he went off and he retired to Kent in the southeast of England. And in his retirement, he studied the moon. He would sit at night looking up at the moon. Um, and he made these meticulous and beautiful drawings of the moon. Um, this is one. It's a painting that's about two meters by two meters high. And it's um, utterly stunning painting. It was shown at the Great Exhibition. Um, in 1851, which was the exhibition that Queen Victoria and Prince Albert came to. Um, it was actually the founding of the museums that Taran uh, uh, talked about on the exhibition road. Um, and Naismith was given an award by Prince Albert for this extraordinary painting because they believed it to be so accurate and so beautiful. Um, and it was this that uh, brought Naismith to the attention of, of many people. And he did these meticulous studies of every part of the moon. So at night, he would uh, look at things like the craters here and do very lots of studies of them. And he also, there's the next image. Yeah, he would also recreate these craters in plaster of Paris. Um, and he was doing this in the same way that you might see, you know, plaster models of great sculpture. He believed them to be, you know, really a replica of, of the real thing, very close to the real thing. Um, and he would light these images and recreate pictures of the moon. So here you can see this 3D sculpture, but then he would light it and cause shadows so that he could photograph his models and create pictures that looked just like what he saw through his telescope of the moon. And it was these images that were um, published in a book that he called The Moon, A World, A Planet, and A Satellite. Um, and these were revered by scientists of the time. Um, so the um, Norman Lockyer, the editor of Nature magazine, a very important uh, scientific magazine, said that these are no more truthful a representation than could be found anywhere else. So really stunning pictures. So I hope that shows you um, that in many ways, the way that we work with images and the way that we mediate images, um, both in art and science, are totally interrelated. And I think he gives us a great example of that. So those are just the two stories. I'll hand over to, to Pearl now um, to talk about her perspective of innovation and art and science. Thank you. All right, thank you. So I think I'm gonna take the thread of the railways and um, take it in a very different direction. So uh, I live in Amsterdam and I travel to the UK quite frequently and uh, my work is about decolonizing technology. So I talk about colonization and the new kinds of new colonization happening in the data sphere, right? So usually I come into this very awkward conversation with people in the UK and some British scholars like, well, um, at least we gave you Indians the railways, right? 
So, um, and I'm like, yeah, thank you. And indeed, it is an awesome innovation. And we are ever grateful for the century um, plus of uh, introducing us to this amazing technology. But also, we shouldn't forget that the railway was a systematic way in which colonizers could rape countries, their colonies, you know, across board from their raw resources and made themselves rich as a result. So when we look at innovation, we really look, need to look at it in context to the social situation at hand and move away from celebrating or, you know, uh, sort of looking at it as a tool that is going to destroy you. So, uh, next slide. Yeah, so I'm a digital anthropologist, and it's basically a fancy way of saying I look at what people do with a digital media and how do they make sense of their everyday lives, right? And my book, basically, which has come out last year, uh, was about an accumulation for more than a decade of digital anthropological experiences, particularly in low-income con contexts in India, Brazil, South Africa. And part of the thing, what I'd like to talk about is one of the arguments I make is what we need is less innovation for the global poor. Now, to make the statement seem so blasphemous in this day and age where people are so in love with the term innovation, every country is trying to be ahead of the innovation game, right? I mean, if you don't innovate, you're going to die as a society, as people. Parents are worried because you won't get automated, you won't get replaced if you're creative and innovative. And yet, the way in which innovation has been construed and designed for the marginalized majority, which is the global poor, have been actually devastating to these populations. And here's an example. Um, next slide. So how many of you have watched this movie, Gods Must Be Crazy? All right, so you guys are quite old, right? Like me. <laughs> so it's already, it's, it's a proxy for what's the age demographic here. So yeah, I can see that. All right, for the majority of youngsters, uh, not me, and you guys uh, who raised your hands. So this was a crazy movie. It was basically this Coke bottle dropping from the sky and this tribal community in Africa is like, what the hell is that? And so they're like trying to figure it out, this amazing innovation, is it a rolling pin, is it a musical instrument? And the movie goes on like, you know, exploring this new technology in the tribal community. So there's this guy, Nicholas Negroponte, he is one of the tech evangelists of our era, one of the most influential technologists, and uh, you know, he founded MIT Media Lab, and so on and so forth. And in early 2000s, he's standing in front of the Silicon Valley Summit, thousands of people, and he's like, I have an idea. My vision is I'm going to throw these laptops and tablets from the sky in the Kalahari Desert. And these tribal communities are just going to run and love it, right? Now, if some idiot told you this on the streets, you're like, my god, why isn't that person in an asylum, right? But no, there was a standing ovation because, my God, what a bold statement to make. So one of the things is about innovation has so much come to mean disruptive innovation, radical disruption. It's not incremental. You have to, be, you have to blow the place up, right? Um, uh, next slide. Yes. His uh, co-companion, another evangelist, right, a tech evangelist, Sugatha Mitra, came up with another brilliant idea. 
get rid of schools, get rid of teachers, put a hole in the wall, put a computer in there, kids will teach themselves from you know, math to biology to chemistry. And uh, he is again deeply celebrated. And you know, it's been a decade of failures in terms of his proven studies, and yet he and, um, what do you call it, Negroponte sit on the boards of some of the top uh, you know, innovation summits, innovation incubators, and financial corporations, such as XPRIZE, right? And who is behind it all, the third element of the wheel, is Elon Musk, who also is great at radical disruption, who proposes that if, oh yes, sure, climate change, the planet is going to shit, so why not move a million people to Mars? That's a great solution, right? So here's my first point. Technology as disruptive innovation, we really got to get away from it. We need to see it in terms of how it's impacting people's lives and making meaning from them. The second point is that, you know, this idea that novelty is inherently good. When we think about innovation, we think about progress. All the positive connotations come to mind. But how many of you guys have used this app, Learn More? I mean, after all, it's a number one dating app in India. Do you guys not have a romantic life? No? Well, guess what? It's not a surprise that nobody's raising their hands. This is actually, I was alerted by a journalist a few days ago saying, this is a number one app, and this is an entire scam. There are intermediaries who have populated and gamed the system to push reviews and have made it the number one app in India. And so these young boys and young girls, particularly boys, get online desperate for love because, hey, guess what? In India, we have 63 million less women because of gender bias, okay? On top of it, you have men who are fed on Bollywood romances and less than 10% of this population is gonna have a love marriage. So they are full of the Bollywood hormones and they want romance. And innovation is driving, if you're talking about digital media, you're talking about romance economies, nothing else. Pornography and romance, and what this app is doing is, it is basically hooking you with all these sexy girls, connecting with you, and says, if you want to connect with me, you need to subscribe. And that's how the story goes. And the third and last point before we go into this conversation is that we need to stop thinking about innovation as a product. We, we seem to think that's the most important thing, which means that all the innovations that trickle down technology comes from Silicon Valley, it comes from the West and goes to the rest. We need to think in terms of process innovation because then we will see a lot of in-house innovation happening across for the longest time, right? Many of you are familiar with the Dhabawala system in Mumbai. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of tiffins circulated with 30 seconds of inter, you know, stops to loaded, unloaded, to make sure it reaches all these different places way before any of the mobile tech even took place. How on earth did that happen? That is brilliant. That is a logistical innovation which appears extremely mundane and incremental and boring and doesn't get captured. And then we have this falsification that product innovation is what matters. And I will leave it at that and we can get talking more. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you both for those lovely uh, lovely introductory comments. Uh, I have so many, so many questions, but 
one, one uh, point of commonality between two very different empirical bases of inquiry um, is the idea of immersion in the phenomenon in some sense. So your, your last point, uh, Payal, um, about not forgetting the process, right, and being immersed in the phenomenon with the next billion users or whatever your domain of inquiry is, um, what I take away is uh, less of an opposition to innovation per se, but more of an understanding of how the technology interacts with the users who may be reacting very similarly or differently from what you're used to in the past, so to have some kind of humility uh, with that subject base. And in your case, uh, I was thinking of immersion, trying to immerse myself when the locomotive first came into being, as depicted in that, in that lovely, uh, lovely painting, Turner painting. Um, so let, let, me, let me pick up in no particular order, but maybe start with you, uh, Tilly, if I may. Um, you mentioned the extraordinary thing that this is both a book, this is a book, uh, an exhibition, and a radio show. Uh, from your vantage point in the Science Museum, can you comment about, um, and, and you alluded to the now famous, infamous C.P. Snow lecture back in the 1950s uh, in Cambridge, I think, um, uh, talking about the separation of the sciences and the arts uh, and the lack of advisability thereof. Um, can you comment on how science is received by the, the British public or the public as they, as they traipse through your museum? How do you see that process of scientific understanding or literacy? Thank you, a, a good question. Um, the reason we approached it in this way uh, and to use those three different types of media is we felt that ultimately uh, a science museum like ours is very, very good at telling great stories. That's, you know, that's what we try to do and we try to engage people in science, in scientific understanding, through those stories, through the people they might meet, through understanding the relevance of science in their, uh, in their lives. So we call this concept really scientific capital. You know, we're trying to not teach them science, that's what teachers and schools are very, very good at doing, um, but try to introduce science into every aspect of their lives so that they feel more confident with science, so that they um, feel like science is something for them. Um, and to understand that science, as I said, is, is a human activity. It's something we can all be part of and we're all party to. Um, so yeah, so by taking the book, the radio show, and the exhibition, it was three different ways of really bringing visitors into that scientific conversation and to open up their scientific capital. Um, and a you know, radio series is a great way of telling some good stories, bringing in other opinions, but importantly for a museum, an exhibition is a great way of actually showing you the real thing. You can see the real artifacts or the, the great painting up front and, and actually learn more from it as you know, evidence in front of your own eyes. I think a radio show would be great in India that communicates science literacy. Um, uh, so Bail has had a very illustrious past. I didn't know this from her bio, but she was mentioning to me that she used to be an art dealer. Um, so when you see, you were at, at, at a wonderful juncture of the artist's life and the scientific life in some sense. Uh, do you want to comment on this issue of uh, how one should think about innovation from both the art and science perspective, drawing on your two very uh, overlapping paths, if I may? Sure. Um, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, absolutely. My CV is built on a series of failures so I was a failed artist, and as my 
father will testify is that I actually ran away from home ready to set up some new dimension, new school in a Marxist artist village in Kerala. Clearly that didn't work out. Then I went to be an artist in San Francisco after three years of poverty. I realized I don't think I care for poverty, so screw that. So, you know, let's just say there's a whole series of failures until I arrived at, you know, what I'm actually passionate about. But what I also learned is initially I would purge that from my CV. You can't even see anything of it. And only in recent years I'm reclaiming it because people don't read it as valuable and they don't see it that it is really intertwined. Because what it does is the arts make you inherently irreverent. There's nothing sacred. You cannot think about things in sacred terms. So when you break that dimension, anything, you know, especially when you enter the sciences, because it is so much in silos. There's so many like divas and egos and subsects and one linguist won't talking to another linguist. And, and you know, an artist is all about disrupting all these sort of, sort of prescribed boundaries because that's how great ideas come about, right? So, so that's a lovely word, irreverent, right? And, and I, you know, I think of a good scientist as being irreverent uh, because, uh, you know, of course you want to do incremental science, you want to test the hypothesis that's already out there, but the ultimate thing is if you come up with your own thing, and for that you've got to be irreverent in some sense. So that, that seems to me a point of commonality in some sense between a good artist and a good scientist. And, you know, going back to the, the moon, um, uh, depictions, paintings, models, etc. cetera. Uh, what I was again struck by is again a very scientific aspect of that artistic endeavor, which is the idea that you keep on drawing it and you keep on iterating your way until you capture the likeness of the moon, which is again what a scientist does. You keep refining an experiment, you keep changing, tweaking things, because it's that process of immersion in the phenomenon that gets you to closer to the phenomenon that you want to understand. Yeah? I think that's just as relevant to the way we look at images uh, of other galaxies and other planets today. You know, I'm talking about uh, a publication that's from 1871, but actually, you know, the way that we interpret images from the moon today or the way that we look at things from the Hubble t Space Telescope, all of that is data that has been interpreted has been you know, refined, images that have been colorized, been edited, cropped. Um, so there's just as much um, you know, personal interpretation in the imagery that we the see of the moon and, and the, the galaxies today. Um, I think if you think about the image of Earth, Earthrise, you know, the image that came back from the Apollo 8 um, mission, the first time mm. that we saw the Earth from a from afar, we saw our own planet um, completely transformed the way that we all felt about the planet. Um, it's interesting that it's called Earthrise because actually the way that that image was taken was with um, the Earth to the right-hand side. Now, we all see it now rotated through 90 degrees with the Earth below um, and, and uh, you know, the atmosphere above. But actually, you know, even from that first image that was manipulated in some way um, so that it gave, gave us a different interpretation of our place in the universe. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of a lovely article that I read in the Atlantic uh, magazine by Walter Isaacson. I, I forget the title. It was something like, you know, how did Leonardo make the Mona Lisa smile? Uh, something to that effect. 
And really, it's a meditation on the use of science by the artist, Leonardo, right? Saying that each uh, anatomical detail of the Mona Lisa as it finally is depicted uh, is the result of extraordinary scientific investigation. Um, uh, really amazing, and you can see it in the, in the sketches in the notebooks. Um, let, me, let me turn to more contemporary issues, uh, moving from the 1800s and colonialism and so on. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking about the implications of some of this conversation and your own work for innovation, the way it is understood, correctly or incorrectly, by contemporary organizations, right? And you must have thoughts about this. Um, uh, Pile, do you want to, either in you know, organ companies or universities or what have you, uh, what are some of the uh, misunderstandings, if you will, about the idea of innovation that you would point to and admonish us all to pay attention to? Yeah, well, a couple of thoughts. One is, you know, when you talk about moving away, whether it's from colonialism or the past, I would actually say, on the contrary, we need to remember that the history is our future. And this is, I, I, I'd like to push that point a little deeper, uh, going by what Tilly was saying, is right now we have a sort of disrespect for the past. We don't feel we can learn enough about the past, right? And I'm talking about in the scientific circles, uh, we have a crisis of the lack of reproduction studies that are happening. And we're talking all the way to the hard sciences, right? People are not reproducing and retesting scientific theories, uh, certain kinds of uh, genetic uh, testing, et cetera, all these tests, uh, because it doesn't yield a Nobel Prize. It doesn't yield a publication, because all you're doing is affirming somebody else's you know, little experiment, which makes us build entire new institutions, policies, medical uh, regulations, and infrastructures around experiments. And this is one of the biggest crises that it doesn't get underlined enough. What we need to do is decenter innovation. Innovation is not that important. When we think about it in terms of novelty, what we need to do is recenter all the tweaking and adjusting. Because if you think about Facebook and MySpace, how different were they both, right? MySpace and Facebook were very similar except for a little tweaking. Facebook quickly understood that if you allow people to select the friends and create their own communities, then people will like it because nobody wants to be part of a generic mass. And so that was a little tweaking, going by what Tilly is talking about, these little twists, a little like tinkering, this constant process of tinkering. Because the way in which we talk about innovation is very fictionalized. We say something is innovative, but we're actually putting a benchmark, just like history. We're like, this was when, this was the beginning of World War II. Really, was it? You know, this was the, this was the groundbreaking technology that changed our lives. Really, was that? And so it's actually the collective tweaking and tinkering across the years that makes it meaningful for us. And I would emphasize that because otherwise we're really going down the wrong path. Just picking up on that, I mean, I would completely agree with Pyle that, uh, you know, this, this idea that you're saying about disruptive innovation, that actually, you know, we need to move away from this disruptive innovation. But to me, it's slightly recast it and actually say, well, maybe we're talking about this word innovation, but we're not looking at it in the right way. To me, so much of when we talk about innovation is actually about the moment of invention. It's not about that longer term 
adoption um, and creation that happens once the in inventions happen. So actually, you know, we need to take that long view and we need to understand that innovation is over decades and centuries. Um, it's not over, over months and even weeks in the tech industry. Um, I think we're being sold a bit of a, a line, you know, that we always need to chase the new, new thing, the big, shiny, you know, latest operating system or whatever it is. Um, but really, if you look um, in a, you know, at technological history, you can see that so many of these technologies uh, are adopted and changed by us, the consumers. It's, it's the users that really define these technologies in the longer term. So, so that's, that's an excellent point that both of you are making, that it's, it's sort of a continuous uh, process of multiple people coming together, uh, not an epiphany usually of one thing that's... that's uh, I'm, I'm reminded of an empirical study that I, that I saw, I'm forgetting who did it, um, social scientists in the US who collected data on, um, you know, new things going back centuries, and his quest was to basically ask from the, from the first moment that X appeared, how long was it before some plurality of society adopted X? And the answer, as, uh, as I recall, was an average of multiple decades, uh, not just a few, a few months, and including things that we would today you know, think of as uh, quite mainstream and mundane. Even those had lead users, so to speak, who then tweaked the, that particular innovation shared it with others, and society collectively came up with what exposed we would classify as an innovation, so to speak. I mean, look, here we all are because of books. You know, we're here because of books, one of the oldest pieces of technology. Um, you know, the, the introduction of the, the telephone and, and the television didn't get rid of books, and thankfully email isn't going to get rid of books. You know, these are technologies that are here to stay. Yeah, I mean, even podcasts, right, are basically reviving the practice of listening, you know, oral histories, and then radio, and every new technology, people are like, okay, then, you know, when the radio came about, surely, you know, people will not read, people still read, and everything is, it, it, there's almost like a death sentence of the past every time a new technology comes, right? I mean, think about the crazy, one of the proclamations by Edison saying, with the light bulb, we don't need schools because people will look and study on their own and they don't need the death of the school system based on his light bulb. And so let's not get swept by the hubris and arrogance of innovators. That's the other thing, right? Because they will sell you, whether it's like Elon Musk who will convincingly say, screw this planet, say goodbye to it. Actually, why not just like, you know, increase it and like exhaust it and let's move to Mars, right? The same kind of deep arrogance that drives us in the opposite direction. And we really have to, but it's also extremely seductive because it gives you this very futuristic something, right, that you can hold on to and you can fall in love with. People just don't fall in love with the incremental, the tweaking. It sounds boring, right? I'm like an okay person because majority of us are just mediocre and that's okay. We don't need to be fabulous to be happy. So, I mean, the thing is, we're so in love with these super everythings, these, you know, extrapolatives of uh, life that we miss out that the real elements that really become meaningful in our everyday lives are these very mundane, ordinary things. So, so Pail, are you against Elon Musk type of character? No, really. I mean, I, if he proposes wrong? to me, I'd marry him, yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
No, I mean. But I'm not moving to Mars. I mean, I, my, we can have one home that. there, one home yeah, here. You don't, you don't know that for a fact, right? I mean, I mean, surely yeah. it's not either or. I mean, you yeah. know, society needs crazy guys too, right? We yeah, need, but we the need thing people is, pushing. Yes, uh, people say this, but it comes at a tremendous price. Like, you know, the one laptop, one laptop per child, it lost millions of euros of uh, community, low-income communities in Africa and Latin America. And people are like, listen, this is a price of innovation, but at whose cost? It came, so it was 100 euros. People don't realize it's a trade-off. It's not a supplement over an education system. So what we had was during the one laptop per child era, for a decade, the poor African children, Latin American children, lost out on entire year of schooling because their budget was 100 euros. So either the government bought a laptop for 100 euros and they told the kids, enjoy, for the whole year, no teachers, no schools, no textbooks, or they could have invested in people, teachers, right? And that is the reality of the situation. We don't have limitless money. We are always constrained with our resources. So I'm sorry, there is no, that's what I mean. It's like, we need less innovation because it's coming at the cost of the marginalized majority. Majority of the people are low income, poor, and cannot afford to lose out on the basics of life, right? So, so can I try a different, a different uh, moderation of that uh, and see if, you, see if it, it works for you? Um, so on the Negroponte example, um, when I think about listening to you articulate it, um, uh, and I watched it unfold in my backyard, so to speak, at MIT, um, my issue is not so much with the craziness of the idea, personally. Mm -hmm. It's with the governance of the execution of the idea. So what should have happened is Nicholas tried it, put the stuff out. It clearly failed in a couple of locations. Uh, the governance should have been strong enough to shut it down right, and stop wasting the money. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very difficult for me to sit here and say, OK, there's going to be a bunch of crazy ideas, and we're going to shut them all down because they all sound crazy. I'd rather have a world where we have crazy people but then we have governance processes that prevent them from exploiting vulnerable populations and so on. So it seems to me that what we need is, let me be provocative, more innovation. We need more innovation in the governance process, so to speak, to, to curtail uh, faulty experiments rather than saying, let's shut the visionaries down, which seems to me to be a colossal mistake uh, in and of itself. Uh, so we're running out of time, but let me uh, 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 go to Tilly, because you were gonna say something yeah, and I, I mean I don't, don't get me wrong, I am not a Luddite. I do not want to stop innovation. I don't, you know, I do believe that we need this technological progress, but I think um, it's very much about thinking about the human agency and the human control and the human input into that innovation. Um, so, you know, what worries me about the kind of things we see with Negroponte is that you're thinking about us all as, as passive consumers, that this technology is dropped in and it transforms us all and, you know, we all go away into this wonderful future. Um, that's not going to happen. You know, this is a, a, we need to be actively engaged in this and this is why it's so important that, um, you know, the generation today is learning to code, is learning to understand data, is learning to be part of that, that conversation, um, not to just be you know, given these technologies and told that um, we must get on with them. So let me give 
file the last word if you want to say something then we can open it up yes i mean look if these innovations are so damn fabulous why don't they experiment on their own school kids with i'm talking about the wealthy ones right who can afford to take the risk and here's a good marker actually some of them did fall in love with their own ideas like the experiment of alt school which is in silicon valley where they thought oh my god this really is a great idea they drank their own kool-aid so they set up this where the teachers became data crunchers and kids were given playlists of curriculums within two years the richest of rich silicon valley parents we're talking about a project funded 50 million euros by steve jobs uh, Elon was the whole, the, the who is who in Silicon Valley. And the next thing you know, they're like, oh my God, we don't even need cell phones in classrooms. Let's come up with a new thing. Parents are protesting, it's shut down. And that was two years. But you know what? They could afford it because those kids are getting all kinds of other learning and they will be successful because they have rich parents. Just don't experiment and use low-income populations as live laboratories for your testing of technologies. So that's what I would call governance of the process, and I agree with that completely. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bytes. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. Jepper Bytes is a Launchora production. Producers of Story Talking with Laksh, The Visionary Podcast, Jazz India Circuit Podcast, Poetry Darbar, and most recently, Play Me Life. All our shows are available on all major podcast apps. Once again, I'm your host, Lakshdatta, and thank you for listening. Thank you.